0: Parents, if you still have kids who need to go back to class, you can take them. Their their teachers are ready. If you've got a Bible, you want to open to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to move past verse 1 today, huh? Had to happen at some point. The tallest building in the world is called the Burj Khalifa, it's in Dubai. Uh, Nothing, no other building on the planet comes within 500 feet of how tall it is. It's over half a mile straight up, uh, which is incredible to think about. Construction began on that on January 12th of 2004. That would be the day, you know, they like shoved this ceremonial shovel into the ground for the first time. And for a very long time, nothing remarkable seemed to to be taking place. In fact, the beginning of that project involved 45,000 cubic meters of concrete, weighed 110,000 tons, just put down in the foundation there, 150 feet into the ground, almost 200 of these vertical piers that went down through that even beyond the concrete, all to support what was going to come up on top. And it was a full three years before there was any sort of like meaningful milestone in the construction of that building. Three years after the beginning of that construction in 2007, the building was finally the tallest concrete structure in the world, just over 1,400 feet tall. Three months after that, August 12, 2007, the Burj Khalifa was finally taller than the Sears Tower, which is like 1,730 feet. In April of 2008, it was finally the tallest self-supporting structure in the world. In October of 2009, the exterior construction ended. 2,717 feet tall, 163 floors, half a mile up, far and away the largest building in the world but it it took three years of like foundation work in order to get to the point where that building could be supported so uh, i feel like that means we can spend three years in genesis (laughs) one before i feel compelled at all to move forward i'm kidding my prayer here in sort of moving slowly through the opening few chapters of genesis is that we're able to lay a really, really deep and strong foundation so that as we move forward through Genesis, but also just in general as we interact with scripture, we're able to take that really deep and strong foundation and then allow like the beauty and the majesty of both the word of God and the gospel to stand on top of that foundation. It's possible, uh, you know, that you're, a month into a reading plan through the Bible, and depending on how that's set up, you very likely have finished the book of Genesis, and you're going to continue forward. And a lot of what happens in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but really the first three chapters of Genesis, lay out these motifs and patterns that then you see recur all throughout Scripture. And so part of moving slowly here at the beginning of this series is Bringing forward those patterns and those motifs so that then we can identify them as we interact with scripture, whether it be in this context or in your small group, in a Bible study, in your home, during your quiet times. And so, for those of you who are just sort of like, Tim, how long is this going to take? Let me just map out how we're going to work through Genesis chapter one. We're going to take all of Genesis. One, like the initial creation account, really goes through the first three verses of chapter two this morning and just look really big sort of picture. Next week, then, we'll zoom in to the six days of creation that fall inside of that. Once we've done those six days of creation, I want to take one day very specifically and talk about what it means that humanity is made in the image of God. That deserves its own We shouldn't just cram that into like day six of creation. That needs its own little chunk there. Then on the heels of humanity being made in the image of God, God does a curious thing, which is that he takes all of this creation, he tells humanity to rule and subdue it. That deserves some time. What does it mean that we get this sort of like creation mandate where we're supposed to partner with God in what exists here in this place? So that will be its own weekend the very uh last portion in the book of genesis or genesis chapter one in this creation account at the end of the six days is that god says that everything that he had created was very good indeed what does that mean today because sin comes into the world so like is this place still very good indeed is it some combination of good and bad did it used to be good and now it's not good That feels like it deserves a little bit of time. And then we'll look at Sabbath, the seventh day there. And so sometime in early March, we'll move into Genesis chapter 2. How's that sound? Just fine. Thank you. One person is on board. So if you've got Genesis open there in front of you, I'm going to read all of Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis 2 verse 3. And we're looking for like the big rhythms and the big patterns of what we sort of hear and see as we read this account. If you've got it in front of you, you can follow along. Genesis chapter one says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, evening came, and then morning the second day. Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth produce vegetation, seed bearing plants, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation. Seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with the seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth to rule the day and the night and to separate light from darkness, and God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth or the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that crawl and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful. Multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given to you every seed bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife on the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we praise you because you are powerful, sovereign, your creator of all things. God, we see and we recognize your power and your glory in all that you have created. God, we praise you for the way that you created this place in order to display your glory and reveal your character. God, we praise you because we can know you. God, I pray this morning that your spirit would Fill this place and speak through the power of your word. God, I pray that your spirit would take these truths and use them to form us into the image of Jesus. I pray that your spirit would take these words and use them to fill us with life to the full. God, we pray that the result of our time together would be that you are glorified, that we are encouraged And that our lives continue to be shaped into the image of Jesus for the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. For your glory, God, would you do that work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there's a pattern here in what we just read. It's one that is a motif that gets sort of laid out. And you can see it throughout scripture from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation. And so that pattern is this. That by the power of his word, God forms and fills for the display of his glory. We're going to take Genesis 1 verse 2 and kind of see this structure or framework that it gives us. Then we're going to fit all of the rest of the Genesis 1 creation account up into that framework. Pull it forward to today and apply that for what that means for us and what it is that we're supposed to to do with that. And so... Our mental conception of Genesis chapter 1 is Genesis 1 verse 1 and then Genesis 1 verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light, and there was light. But that jumps over Genesis 1 verse 2, which is actually a really important piece for understanding how it is that the author of Genesis and the book of Genesis lays out this creation account. It sets the structure for what is about to take place. And so Genesis 1 verse 2 says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Literally, the earth was tohu wavohu. Tohu, formless, looks like bohu, that's pronounced with a V sound. Wavohu, empty. Empty. Now, the translation of that rhyming set of words is actually fairly tricky because they're nouns in Hebrew. Pretty much every English translation that you have, whether it's the CSB that I read or any other one, when you look down, those are going to be presented to you as adjectives. The earth was, earth being the noun, formless and empty, the formless and the empty describes the earth if you just tried to transliterate it from Hebrew into English you would say something more akin to the earth was a desert and a wasteland some English translations try to harmonize that a little bit by doing like adjective noun construction the verse was a desert wasteland the earth was a formless void no matter how the translation tries to put those things together The sense of Genesis 1, verse 2, is that God created the heavens and the earth, and what you have at the start of verse 2 is this place that's not yet complete. It's not bad. It just isn't done yet. And then the verse goes on. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Formless and empty space is apparently shrouded in darkness and covered with water. And that's the backdrop for the highlight of the verse, which is the Spirit of God is present. Hovering. That's the highlight. God is present in the midst of this formless emptiness. God, what we would call the Father, creates like we said in Genesis chapter one, like the whole kit and caboodle, all of it, the up high and the down low, heavens and earth, all of it comes into being because of him. And there's this potential to it. The potential is there because the spirit of God is there hovering over the surface of the waters. Literally, that's like fluttering over the surface of the deep is what we're told the spirit of God is doing. That fluttering image gets picked up in the New Testament. Jesus is baptized. While he's there being baptized, the Father speaks from heaven. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descends as a a dove. What do birds do? Flutter. Like That mental image to a Jewish individual who's familiar with their Bible would have been really powerful. Ah, yeah, that's what the Spirit of God does. Hovers. Flutters. The earth is formless and void, formless and empty. It's a desert wasteland, but it's full of potential because God is present and ready to act upon it. And when we do the sort of like Genesis 1, 1, jumping to Genesis 1, verse 3, we skip over this important element, which is that in Genesis 1, verse 2, you ought to sort of lean forward and say, and then what happened? When my wife tells stories, like her brain gets going so fast that she'll be mid story or sometimes mid sentence and she'll start to either think about something else or she'll get a little distracted by something. And so she'll say, I was at dinner the other day. And I'm like, there's got to be a predicate to that. You were at dinner and what happened? That's the sense of Genesis chapter 2. In the beginning, our Genesis 1 verse 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was tohu avohu and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface. And you should lean in and say, and did what? Like it's formless and empty, but, but God is there and so then what happens? Remember this This is an oral thing. It would have been passed on verbally. And so whoever is giving the account gives that verse, and everybody says, I need to know what happens next. And then God speaks. And by the power of his word, he forms and fills that which was formless and empty. And he does so for the display of his glory. He takes all the potential of verse two and he brings about everything that we know in this container that we live in. Genesis chapter one puts that into six days of creation split into these two parallel chunks of three days. And so as we start to talk about this, I know that there are some issues within like the six days and sort of parts of the science of this that some of you have burning questions about. And there's possibly even some of you who say, I need to know what this preacher thinks about those days. We'll do that next week. (laughs) This week, I want us to see the big picture of this. First three days, God forms. And he forms by making meaningful divisions within what exists here. And so he starts to separate things. And it's in the separating that he starts to bring some order. He separates light from dark, day one. Then he separates, we're told, the waters from the waters, and he puts an expanse in between them. So he separates sky up above from sea, water down below. Then on day three, he takes all of that water in the sea and he separates it from land but that's not the only thing he does on day three. Day three gets two acts because once he separates the land out, he creates vegetation on it. He forms everything. He brings order into the container so that in the next three days, days four, five, and six, he can fill that container with life. So the light and the dark gets separated by two lights in the sky, the greater one that rules the day and the lesser one that rules the day the night. Then the second day, he takes all of that like expanse in the sky and the water down below and he fills it with life. Creatures in the sea and in the air. Then on day six, he fills that land. Creatures on land. But then day six gets two acts because he also creates humanity. And so there's the big pattern forming and filling three days, but they also move the same way. One thing, one thing, two things. See the parallel nature of that? Day seven, then, he rests. We'll talk more about day seven in a few weeks. But the kind of rest that God does here is not the type of rest that comes from exhaustion. It's the kind of rest that comes from satisfaction. Over the, uh, we had a, there was a long weekend a few weeks ago with Martin Luther King junior day, and my wife and I used that weekend to do some painting inside of our house. I do not like the act of painting. Um, We get all the way done with it, and I just immediately want to clean up, forget that that thing ever happened, and move on with my life, and Melody is standing in the middle of the room just kind of like, ah, (laughs) like satisfied, you know, like, oh, look, it's just so beautiful, and I'm like, yeah, whatever, let's just... Move on. But it's rest that comes from satisfaction like that. That's day seven. There's another rhythm that takes place within each one of those days. When we think of the days of creation, like if our Bible gave us all the words of God in red, like some New Testaments do with the words of Jesus, we sort of think that most of Genesis would be red. God speaks, it happens, and like God explains what he did. In actuality, God makes short statements, and then there's a narrator who explains what happened there. But every day goes the same way. God speaks, creation obeys, and it was so. God gives an evaluation. That thing was good, except for on day two. That evaluation isn't included. And then time passes. Evening came and then morning, the -the fill-in-the-blank day. Every day, same rhythm. God said that's how he creates it's by the power of his word it's not like a child with legos who sits down and takes some some you know those legos and tries to build into a thing it's not as though god takes raw material and reaches down with his hands and then forms something he speaks and by the power of his word creation obeys When God speaks, that which was not suddenly is. And that's the first indication that we get that God is sovereign, meaning that he's in charge or he's in control. And creation acts in obedience. It was so. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let's separate the, the waters from the waters and put an expanse in between them, and it was so, and on and on and on. There's no sign of protest or resistance throughout the creation account. We'll talk more about this next week as we look at each one of the days more closely. But suffice it to say at this point that God is not struggling with some opposite force that he's trying to wrangle into control. No, he speaks, creation obeys immediately. And then there's an evaluation. God saw that it was good. The very last day we're told that it was very good indeed. There's no error in what God creates. He does not need redos or do-overs. There's no sense of him kind of like slowly working things toward perfection. He's not like an author who submits a book manuscript and the editor works through it and says, you need to make these changes. Then the author goes back and redoes it in order to make it better. That's not what happens in Genesis chapter 1. This is sovereign, perfect God speaking into existence exactly that which he knows will fulfill his purpose. And then he gives his evaluation. God saw that it was, the word is, tov. Remember, it's oral. So someone is, in the early days of this, before it was written, speaking this account. So at the beginning, everything is tohu wavohu. And then every day after that is tov, 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 tov. There's like a verbal sort of cohesion to it. It was formless and empty. Now it's good. In fact, that word tov means that it's usable or desirable. What was formless and empty now has usable desirability or usable goodness. And what's it usable for? The display of the greatness of God's glory. And then time passes. Evening came and morning, the fill-in-the-blank day. Just for the sake of saying it, notice that it's not morning came and then evening. I have no like really profound explanation for that. No one does, but the Jewish pattern of the Sabbath, Sabbath goes from evening to evening, not morning to morning. It's kind of based off this pattern. The intent in all of this is not necessarily to perform or to provide for us a scientific procedure whereby all of this took place. It's to give us theological truth about the God who did it. The intent at the end of the account is that you would get bookended. At the start, you'd be saying, and then what happened? And by the end, you'd be saying, only that God could do that. Like if if that God is real, only he could form and fill this way. And by the power of his word, God forms and fills for the display of his glory. At the beginning of all this, we have something that's formless and empty. And at the end, we have something that is desirable and usable. What ought to stand out in the account is that only God can make that change happen. Only he can take that which is a desert wasteland and transform it by the power of his simple word into that which is a usable desirable, good place. I don't know what your familiarity with the biblical story is, but in Genesis chapter 3, sin comes into the world. And with that sin comes God's curse. This container that he has made and everything that's within it, most notably humanity, humanity that was filled with God's blessing for the purpose of displaying his glory uniquely in his creation. It gets cursed. And in Genesis chapter 3, what's the verbiage of that curse? That the land will produce thorns and thistles. That humanity will eat the fruits of the land, but they will do so as a result of painful labor. Remember, as we read through this, they were just given everything, seed-bearing trees and, and the fruits of those trees and that that was going to be food for every living thing at the end of Genesis chapter 3 you'll still eat but it'll come at the cost of painful labor and the land will produce thorns and thistles rather than the fruitfulness that Genesis chapter 1 describes and for all the rest of scripture there's this kind of like push and pull like a tug between undesirable void and as a result of sin and the curse and usable desirability because God is created and what he creates is good. The word tohu shows up like 20 times in the Old Testament, but the word vohu only shows up two other times, three times total, once in Genesis chapter one and two other places. And it only ever does so in connection with this exact construction, tohu wa vohu. And so... I think it's worth the small diversion for me to show you the two times that this happens. The first is in Isaiah chapter 34. What that chapter contains is a pronouncement of judgment against the nation of Edom. The Edomites, those were the people uh, descended from Esau. So, Genesis chapter 27, there's Jacob and Esau. The blessing goes through Jacob. Because Esau sells his birthright, and you get the genesis of Esau are the descendants of Esau's people, and they're called the Edomites. Geographically, that would have been south and east of Israel. God uses Isaiah to pronounce judgment against Edom. I'm going to pick this up in verse 8 of Isaiah 34. Isaiah says, For the Lord has a day of vengeance. A time of paying back Edom for its hostility against Zion. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur, her land will become a burning pitch. It will never go out day or night, its smoke will go up forever. It will be desolate from generation to generation. No one will pass through it forever and ever. Eagle owls and herons will possess it. And long-eared owls and ravens will dwell there. The Lord will stretch out a measuring line and a plumb line over her for her destruction and chaos, for her tohu wa vohu. The other time that this shows up is in Jeremiah chapter 4. This time, God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah, and it's directly to the people of Israel specifically in Jerusalem. There's judgment coming, God says, through Jeremiah. And it's coming from the north. We'll see as I read through this. The north is going to be Babylon. Those are the people who will take the the people of Jerusalem into exile. So this is Jeremiah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. If you return, Israel, this is the Lord's declaration, You will return to me if you remove your abhorrent idols from my presence and do not waver. Then you can swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness. Then the nations will be blessed by him and will pride themselves in him. Verse 5. Declare in Judah, proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the ram's horn throughout the land. Cry out loudly and say, assemble yourselves and let's flee to the fortified cities. Lift up a signal flag toward Zion. Run for cover, don't stand still, for I'm bringing disaster from the north, a crushing blow. That goes on for quite a while. It doesn't get any any more positive. Verse 23, Jeremiah is lamenting over this thing that's going to happen when destruction comes from the north. And he says this, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. Tohu wavohu. I looked to the heavens and their light was gone. I looked to the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills shook. I looked and there was no human being and all the birds of the sky had fled. I looked and the fertile land was a wilderness and its cities were torn down because of the Lord and his burning anger. What's the point of all of that? Genesis chapter three, thorns and thistles as Adam and Eve leave, Isaiah, Jeremiah, judgment coming. The removal of God's blessing would be a return to formlessness and emptiness. Destructive, destruction, a wasteland, desolate. That phrase for Israelite people in the midst of that pronouncement coming from Jeremiah would be very powerful because God took tohu wavohu and he brought all of this life from it. And now he's saying, if we keep worshiping these idols, he's gonna send us back to the formless emptiness. He'll remove the blessing. Scripture is the account of how God uses a particular people, Israel, to bring into the world a particular person, Jesus, who will do a very particular work. And that particular work is that he's going to bring fullness of life and blessing to his people that he's forming from every tribe, nation, and tongue. so I just wanna like, I wanna take this forming and filling pattern and just kind of pull it through some of the highlights of scripture. When God calls Abraham, that's where this Genesis series is going to end for us. He tells Abraham, you that are not a people will become a people and you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. He's going to form them into a people and fill them with blessing that the nations might see the goodness and the glory of who God is. Humanity exists, right? There's all this potential for the display of God's glory, but God does meaningful dividing. It'll be Abraham and his descendants. And then he brings, right, like life into barren wombs. He fills them, Sarah. And then through all these descendants, he's constantly dividing. It's going to be Isaac, not Ishmael. It's going to be Jacob, not Esau. He's infusing that line with power and purpose and blessing to display his glory. And all the while, when you read the book of Genesis, there is this obvious sort of push and pull between the void, formless, destructive nature of sin and the forming, life-giving power of a sovereign God. Like, you read the book of Genesis, you read about Abraham and his family, Isaac and his family, Jacob and his family, and you're like, these people make my family look normal. (laughs) Like, this is so messed up. How did we pick this family out of all the families of the earth in order to say, here's the way That God is going to form for himself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue that he will infuse with his blessing and display his glory to the ends of the earth. You could have picked someone better. They end up in Egypt, in slavery. It's the book of Exodus. They're led by Moses out of Egypt and into the wilderness where they receive the law. And what does the law do? It forms uniquely this people of God by dividing meaningfully for them. Do this, not that. Eat this, not that. Worship like this, not like that. Why? Because if you live according to my sovereign and powerful word, there is life. If not, formless, wasteless. Formless wasteland. They're going to arrive in the promised land, the book of Joshua. And God says, I will go before you and I will drive out the nations from the promised land. And then you will divide that land among yourselves and live with me in relationship with me and in fullness of life and blessing. That ends up being an absolute train wreck. Read the book of Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. And it just gets worse and worse and worse until Jesus The formless God of the universe takes on the form of humanity. The word becomes flesh and comes in in order to form a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who will be filled with life thanks to the death of Jesus. He comes to bring life. In him there is blessing and goodness. In him there is no push and pull between usable desirability and formless emptiness. It's only life and goodness through him and by god's grace through faith in him he's forming a people from every tribe nation and tongue who will be filled with his spirit and live life to the full as jesus promised and that happens because jesus willingly takes on the fullness of the curse that you might receive the fullness of the blessing forming and filling And then there's the rest of the New Testament, all the epistles, and you could carry that forward all the way to today. And what's like the big so what of this, Tim? Well, the so what is that God still forms and fills today. He uses all of life to form us, his people, into the image of Jesus. Every single season of life, you're being formed powerfully and intentionally, right? You can fall into the ditch on either side of this. It's very easy to get tempted into thinking that it's only the seasons of like joy and abundance of what seems like blessing and goodness where I would be willing to like actively partner with God as he forms me into the image of Jesus. Or we can go the other way and say, Well, when it's in those seasons, I'm just kind of on cruise control, but it's when hardship really comes into my life. Then God must be forming and filling me, because why else would this bad thing happen other than to mold me into the image of Jesus? And the reality is every season, all of it, beginning to end, and submitting and obeying God and his word in the midst of that is what it means to be continually pursuing holiness, That inside, each and every one of God's people is this unique potential for the active display of the glory of God. And he will use every season and every event and every emotional ebb and flow in order to lovingly guide us toward that end. And Paul says in Philippians, he will carry that on to completion. He will. And so let's just make make it painfully clear. You're a student. Middle school, high school, college. It's very easy to think when we're young, later, later, God will sanctify me. Later, I'll give myself over to that at some kind of hazy, fuzzy point in the future. Then I'll lock in and get serious as if what youth is all about is just finding out the limits of sin so that we can find the depths of our own brokenness, and then sometime down the road, God will form me into the image of Jesus. No, if you have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, he starts forming you immediately. Immediately. And so, if you're a student, I cannot urge you enough. Don't waste that season. God is doing good things in you during that. He wants you molded into the image of Christ right there in middle school, right there in high school, right there in college. Not later. Now. Your career. Like We'll talk a lot about what it means to rule and subdue and what it means that we would sort of partner with God in this creation kind of act as he's bringing about the display of his glory in this place. We'll talk about that. But suffice it to say, your career is not just a thing that you go and you do so that you can make enough money to live. Your career career is a place for the active display of the glory of God in and through the gifts and the passions and the way that he's created you. And every little event in that place, every tedious day, where all you do is like emails and spreadsheets, There's an opportunity to be formed into the image of Christ in that. Every difficult meeting, every frustrating turn of events, every maddening client. God's using that. Your marriage. If you're married, you understand that few things are more sanctifying than committing yourself to knowing someone intimately for the entirety of your life and not wanting to harm them. God takes two very sinful people, puts them together. And the thing in your spouse that has annoyed you for 40 years, where you think to yourself, this is the decade, they finally get it figured out. Eh, Maybe, but also maybe not. And there's an opportunity to be molded into the image of Jesus as two sinful people try to figure out what it is to live life alongside one another. And it's a beautiful, challenging, maddening, frustrating, wonderful thing. And you might be single and thinking, Tim, I cannot wait to have that life. God's using that season as well where all of your longing for that relationship with all of its challenges and glories and blessings. He may be holding out for you in the future, but it's not as if when you get married, then you can finally be living full Christian life. No, It's not marriage that completes us as followers of Jesus. It's Jesus that does that. And even in your singleness, He's molding you and forming you into His image. Every shift or change in the varied seasons of parenthood. You may say to yourself, Tim, I hear that about marriage, but have you tried raising children? I have not. I understand it's challenging. And every time you're interacting with your child, and it's maybe not an issue of sin, or they just did something that you don't love. And it's very possible that the thing that they did that you don't love is actually a reflection of you. And you're like rebuking the child, and hopefully in your moments of clarity later, you say, was I really mad at the child, or am I really frustrated with myself here? Because that's me. And your aim in life as a parent is not just to create little law-obeying children. Your aim in life is to see Christ molded in them, which will require Christ molded in you. Every difficult relationship that you have, frustrating co-workers, annoying neighbors, the difficult people that come in and out of your life at various seasons, the people in this church those are opportunities to be molded into the image of jesus formed into the image of christ retirement look god does not stop forming you into his image when you hit 65 and stop working it's not like you've reached the finish line there and now you just kind of coasted into glory no he's still molding and still forming When there are matters of national or global sort of significance, God's molding his people in the midst of that. And it's not just that we look at what's happening in the world around us and we sort of like rail against it or decry what's happening. There's an opportunity for the people of God to look deeply into the word of God and see how it is that in the midst of that thing in our society or in our world, God is forming and purifying his people seasons of health challenge or loss or grief every single one god's using all of life to form his people and the good news is that you're not left alone in that because remember in creation the whole point is that only god could do that the same is true for you the holy spirit fills us and empowers us to live life to the full In the same way that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of all of that potential in Genesis 1 verse 2. So the Spirit of God is present and active in each one of us. And it is Him who does the molding and forming work inside of us. The challenge of sin is that we are not nearly as obedient and responsive as creation was. We resist. God's word is clear and He speaks sovereignly and powerfully. And we look for a loophole. How do I get out of that? God said, let there be light. And light said, I'll get to it tomorrow. That is more our attitude. We dig in our heels. Sometimes we intentionally disobey God's word and his command. We want holiness on our terms as it suits our desires, according to our picture of what we think is right and wrong. And yet, in the midst of that, there's the spirit of God present, filling his people, bringing them to life and life to the full. He's not just left us subjected to the formlessness and the emptiness of our sin. Romans chapter 8 says we don't have to be obligated to a life of obeying our flesh. No, we've been saved from that life and formed into the image of Jesus. And now what bubbles over inside of us is supposed to be the fullness of life that he promised. And we're filled with the Holy Spirit in order that that might be brought to fruition. And then where does all of this end? Well, in eternity, God is going to form a new heaven and a new earth, and he's going to take this people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He's going to fill that place with them, and sin will be no more, and it will just be the display of his glory for all of eternity. The picture in Revelation 5 is that the nations will sort of like file into that place with all of their culture and all of their distinctiveness and all of it will be to the glory of God. And there will be no more push and pull between empty formlessness and usable desirability because it will only be to the glory of God for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. By the power of his word, God forms and fills for the display of his glory. He's doing that in his people. He did that at creation. He's doing it for the display of his glory. I'm going to pray and then we'll enter into a time of worship. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, we praise you because you are sovereign and powerful and good. God, we praise you because you form and you fill this place in order to display your glory. We praise you because you form and you fill your people for the display of your glory. God, my prayer for me personally and for every person in our church is that we would be obedient and submissive to your sovereign, powerful, forming and filling word. God, that we would give ourselves over to what it is that you're doing and creating inside of us, that we would experience life and life to the full as you form us into the image of Jesus. God, in every season of life, Every event, big or small, every circumstance, good or bad, God, direct our hearts and our minds to the power of your word and its forming, molding, filling presence inside of us, God. Empower us by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might be formed into the image of Christ, filled with the fullness of life and eagerly look forward to a new heaven and a new earth where sin will no longer exist. God, would you do that work in us and through us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can stand.